MSW Media. Hey, it's Kimberly, host of the Start Me Up podcast. If you like your politics with some loose talk and salty language, you're going to love my show. I interview the coolest people like Mary Trump, Kathy Griffin, and DNC chair Jamie Harrison. The Start Me Up podcast has an easygoing, casual style and a strong emphasis on left-leaning politics. We also have frank discussions about sex and more than a few spirited rants. Just visit patreon.com slash startmeup or wherever you get your podcasts and start listening today. of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich, and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 11 of Clean Up on Aisle 45 for March 31st, 2021. I'm Andrew Torres. And I'm AG. And look, March lasted a normal amount of time as as opposed (laughs) to last March, which just ended probably halfway into this March. So I'm very excited about that. We have a fantastic show for you on this last day of March. A great interview with Steve Vladek is coming up. Plus, oh, yeah. yeah, he's just an incredible mind, just a brilliant mind. And um, our thoughts on the big stories in the news right now. But first, we need to thank our newest patrons. We have Harold Fuller Bennett, Mark Richardson, Terry Webb, Michael Brandt, Orjan Solly, and Wesley Aaron. Yeah, and also thanks to Ben, to Swarthy Synth Studio S, which I, Hot. I love that. Anthony Molek, Sheila Connor, Sergio Rothstein, Elizabeth Zanikowski, and Robert Armstrong. And hey, if you'd like a shout out, just head on over to patreon.com slash aisle45pod and sign up for as little as a buck an episode. And uh, we'll read your name even if you're the Swarthy Synth Studio S. Yeah, and you don't just get your name read on the thing. You also get ad-free episodes. You get them before they come out to the public. You get them the night before so you can get all the juicy stuff before. Before everybody else does we have a trip we have trivia coming up soon right you can get all that information on our patreon page if you want to sign up for trivia you just beat andrew and ag in trivia it should be interesting. <laughs> as if, as if. <laughs> get crushed by andrew and ag in trivia yeah but they can assemble teams of five whereas it's just you and i on one well, team yeah. so they have a decide we're giving them a head start <laughs> um all right we have some breaking news in the southern district the sovereign district of new york uh right as we went to record the grand jury is handed down superseding indictments on Ghislaine Maxwell. 
It is now an eight-count indictment. We're going to discuss this in detail on The Daily Beans with Adam Klasfeld. But here's the 30,000-foot view. There is a fourth sealed victim in this case, another minor. And she was allegedly taken in by Maxwell, groomed and abused by Epstein from 2001 to 2004. So the superseding indictment adds specific charges related to minor victim number four and also updates the previous conspiracy charge uh, or conspiracy charges. They used to say the conspiracy lasted through 1997, and now they say it lasted through 2004 with this additional victim, this minor victim. Yeah, and so the government filed not only the superseding indictment, but also basically a letter with the court that explained the changes, right, that said, look, here's here's what we've changed and here's what remains the same. And um, it, it, it looks pretty clear to me um, that somebody else was able to come forward. So, uh, you know, that's... That's a good thing. Um, obviously, the entire story is uh, horrendous and awful, um, but uh, uh, that that prosecution moves forward, and you know, hopefully, we get to see justice done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, we'll have more information on that. Like I said, on um, on today's actually, it's today's. It would be today's uh, Daily Beans Pod with Adam Klassfeld. So check yeah. that out now. Um, Andrew, I wanted to talk a little bit about the first day. It's actually the 19th day of the Derek Chauvin <laughs> trial, but it's, techni- you know, for for casual viewers, it's the first day because this is when opening arguments happen. Statements. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to. I had to. I know. Uh, uh, put a pin in it. Uh, but no, that, you know, that's what happened today. They had their, their opening statements. And then we they also started the prosecution, started calling witnesses today. And uh, there were three sort of standout moments to, to me today. Actually, a fourth happened just a little bit ago. Um, and and, and the, the first one was, I thought that the prosecution did a, a good job in their opening statement. Uh, I thought that, the, uh, you know, they, they showed the full video, which is, and, you know, it reminded the jury to just believe your eyes, uh, believe what you see in this video. Uh, they they kind of did a sort of a, a like a lube the truth on on what the defense was going to say. They said the defense is going to say he was on drugs. The defense is going to say, uh, et cetera. You know, just all of the basically laying out what the defense's case would be. Uh, the one thing that they sort of left out, and I don't know if they left it out because they're going to hit on it later and they're going to drive it home in, in the closing statements, or you know, I'm not sure if it was part of the strategy here. But there's a definition of cause under Minnesota law. uh, And something about maybe you can explain this a little bit better than I can. But you know, because the defense is is argued, but by the way, listening to the defense opening state opening arguments, opening statements was was (laughs) difficult. But um, yeah, yeah. they, they were saying he has heart problems, hypertension, um, he's got blocked arteries in his heart, and that he was on drugs, he was on methamphetamine and fentanyl, which is called a speedball. And the thing is, though, is that, and again, you're going to be able to describe this better than I can, the cause of death, the kneeling on the neck, the the stoppage of the heart, uh, doesn't have to be the only thing that caused his death in order for it to be ruled a homicide, right? It, it It's kind of 
sort of precludes the fact that other things could be wrong with him. But were it not for the 10 minutes of the knee on the neck, he would still have lived a minute past that. Yeah, that that is, you have that exactly right. And I want to touch on a couple of the things that you just said, right? Um, so, so first, I agree with you that this was a real omission in the prosecution's opening statements. Um, I, I, how, how did you put what what I would call frontlining? I think, I think you called it lubing the truth. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. It, no, that's great. That is that is fantastic. It it it's a real thing that real lawyers really do, and that is um, trials are not like Perry Mason. Um, you you do not have a series of surprising witnesses, each more surprising than the next, right? By and large, the parties have even in a criminal case in which there's significantly less of this, but by and large. The, the parties have exchanged documents. Um, they, they know, roughly speaking, what the other side has access to. And in this case, right, um, uh, Derek Chauvin's attorneys have been vocal in the media in saying that they are going to pursue an alternate cause strategy, right? They're going to say um, that, you know, an officer kneeling on someone's neck for nearly 10 minutes uh, was not the cause of death and that it was, in fact, you know, drugs plus all of this underlying medical conditions. Um, and so you saw some of that frontlining of, you know, hey, the defense is going to get up and tell you X. Uh, but it was a real it was a notable omission to not talk about the drugs um, because that's very clearly going to be an issue and you do not want um the you do not want the jury to be surprised or to hear it out of the mouth of defense counsel first right because that will seem like oh wait you didn't know uh that the key victim in this case uh you know had used drugs and and of course they do know that right so you have to communicate that um and uh so so that's all sort of the point one that you made Point two is another area where you, where you have this dead-on, 100% correct. The definition of cause under Minnesota law is that an item must be a substantial causal factor, right? Not the sole causal factor, right? So in other words, showing that there are other aspects does not negate, right, that kneeling is the substantial causal factor in death. Um, and the way in which that comes about is you get jury instructions at the at the close of the trial, right? You've put on your witnesses, you've introduced your items into evidence, the defense has put on their witnesses and introduced their evidence, and then the lawyers get to go to the judge and say, we want standard pattern jury instruction number seven on cause. And by, I'm making that number up, but that's how it works, right? Like there's a book and the book contains all of the pattern jury instructions and those are presumptively valid, right? If you want to depart from it, you have to have a good reason to do that. And one of the things that, um, that you can get would, would go something like this, right? And so the judge would look at the jury and say, I instruct you that these are the elements of murder. And then you will say, 
I instruct you that to cause means to be a substantial causal factor in causing the death of George Floyd. The defendant, Derek Chauvin, is criminally liable for all of the consequences of his actions that occur in the ordinary and natural course of events, including those consequences brought about by one or more intervening causes if those intervening causes were the natural result of the defendant, Derek Chauvin's acts. The fact that other cases, uh, sorry, the fact that other causes contribute to the death does not relieve the defendant of criminal liability. And the judge will say those words in that order, word for word, to the jury at the close of this trial. So I, I agree with you. I would have liked to have had that book ended with um, telling them that on, on, you know, what is for the jurors day one. Yeah, because if that's going to be their whole defense, then their argument is, had we not touched George Floyd that day, uh, you know, he would have died right at that minute from something else besides my knee on his neck. And and that's just ridiculous. And, and, and the way in which you just put it is the way in which I would have liked prosecutors to put it today, right? To say... To believe the defense, you must believe that George Floyd would have died at exactly the same time in exactly the same way. Um, and and it, would that have been a little hyperbolic? Yeah, I, but but you have that kind of leeway in your opening statement. Right. So, yeah. And it's also it's also true to <laughs> to to assume that that the knee on the neck wasn't the substantial causal factor. Uh, I'm sorry, but is 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 ridiculous. But I, the jury needs to know that. Right. The jury, because you don't want the jury to think, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, fentanyl and methamphetamine and heart blockage and an enlarged heart. And the knee on the neck all combined probably killed him together. Well, then that means that, you know, that Derek Chauvin is culpable. Yes, that that Uh, is exactly what that means. It needed to have been clearer. And that is, uh, I think, a really, really important takeaway. And, And we'll see. Right. This entire trial is public. You can watch it. It is being broadcast on YouTube. So um, mm -hmm. C-SPAN, YouTube. Yep. You can watch the entire thing. Um, something else that I thought was, uh, what, what seemed to me to be coming out of, of, of the defense aside from their, you know, other things killed George Floyd, which they know is terrible and won't work, uh, uh, is that Derek Chauvin was distracted by what was happening under his knee, uh, or he was distracted from what was happening under his knee by onlookers and bystanders and and this impending scary mob that was forming that he was trying to have to think three steps ahead on how to deal with, even though he's there was another police officer standing right there doing nothing, um, you know, not calling for backup and nobody looked nervous. And I mean, just the nonchalance of, of Derek Chauvin with his hands on his hips and his sunglasses on his head looking around like... Yeah, everybody. Okay, uh, to say and, and that. I mean, as a defense attorney, you have to come up with something, and I suppose that that's what they've come up with. Is and I think that we're going to hear a lot more about that uh, distraction from the bystanders, uh, which again, ridiculous. Well, what they're trying to do, I think, to 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 my best ability to put myself in the head of Derek Chauvin's defense attorneys is 
steer the jury away from murder and towards manslaughter. Yep. Right. There's no way you're getting out of this with a not guilty verdict. Right. That's that's ridiculous. But if you can put up enough roadblocks. Right. So you have the causal roadblock. No, we we didn't. You know, Derek Chauvin didn't uh, contribute to the death of George Floyd uh, because of drugs, heart condition, you know, everything we just talked about. Okay, that's probably not going to work, but we'll throw that up there. And then secondarily, you say, and by the way, even if it was a causal factor, Derek Chauvin didn't intend to cause the death of George Floyd. Um, and now, again, remember that intent is, at, you know, you've talked about this until uh, you were blue in the face on Mueller. She wrote, I've talked about it a lot. Um, intent is not specific intent, right? Intent is not just what, uh, you know, the, the way you would describe, um, you know, what's going on in your head. Intent is um, that you intend the directly foreseeable causes, uh, uh, consequences of your action. Right. Um, so it is very, very difficult uh, and it's going to be incredibly difficult to convince a jury that, you know, kneeling on someone's windpipe for nine plus minutes uh, that you do not intend to cause all the reasonably foreseeable consequences of that action. Um, but but that's but that's what they're going for. Yeah. And, and we're going to see they're going to bring on all the police training and, and other people in police department that no, you don't put a person pr- prone. And if you do have to put a person prone, it's just so you can cuff them and then you roll them over on their side. I mean, it's very well known, I guess, uh, thing that you do not do. And they'll they'll bring all those witnesses. But two other things today that stuck out to me and they, it was in witness testimony. Uh, they, they brought uh, one of the, the well, they brought the 911 dispatcher in to testify and now because of uh this intersection has on it a big brother camera an eye in the sky on a on a tall pole and so the 911 dispatcher was able to watch what was happening uh as she's taking the 911 call and something she said she she testified that she had to call a sergeant to say something isn't right with this stop there's something wrong here and she something bad was going on and she wasn't quite sure what because she's not well versed in the legalities of police stops and things like that but also that for a while she thought the video froze and that it was malfunctioning uh, <laughs> you pointed this out to me uh you 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 texted it to me and i i agree with you that 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 is just at the moment uh, that that is the testimony. Look, one of the things you do as a lawyer in plotting out a trial, particularly a lengthy trial with a lot of witnesses, is you give serious thought to the order of your witnesses, right? Um, you know, I'd, we could we could do, it's not dissimilar to the John Cusack advice on how to make a mixtape, Right. Um, but, but you got to start off with your first witness has got to be really, really, really good. And I thought the, yeah, the, it, we thought that the cameras had frozen. Uh, it was a gut punch, right? I mean, it just, it undercuts any potential argument that you're going to make on the other side about, you know, crowd recklessness and, you know, it's necessary to subdue and who knows a defendant could, you know, get free at any time. And I just, 
yeah. Uh, so I, 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 I agree with you that I, I thought that was a gut punch today. Yeah. And then a little bit later, uh, more recently t- today, as, as I was watching after I texted that bit to you, uh, something else stood out to me. And I know we only have about a minute left or so, but uh, another piece of testimony that I think is going to stick in the jury's heads. Donald Williams, who is an MMA fighter, testified uh, and he witnessed Chauvin. He testified that he witnessed Chauvin use what's called a blood choke on George Floyd and described the arrest as being torture. He said, quote, I watched the position of uh, one of where the position of the knee was on the neck two, what body movements was going on while the knee was on the neck and three, what the condition of George Floyd was as he was going through this torture. I felt the officer on top was shimmying to actually get the final choke in when he was on top. And he explained that a blood choke specifically attacks the side of the neck and particularly cuts off the circulation of your arteries and stops the blood flowing from the top of your head to the bottom of your head. And I think just the using the term in court, what he thought was a blood choke, I think is really going to stick in their minds. Uh, yeah, I, this is this was uh, and is uh, news to me in the sense that um, I, I had had never heard use of the term before, and so I, I think again, what your perceptive there about is, um, you know, we talked about the the voir dire process. We talked about the fact that each and every one of these jurors has um, exposure to the case, right? Knows something about the case. The entire veneer, the entire jury pool had seen the video, right? Like, so it was not possible to get a blank slate of jurors who knew nothing about the case. Instead, uh, the, the effort was made to get jurors who agreed to be impartial in their evaluation of the evidence. And, you know, and we'll see how that goes. Um, but one of the things that is really, really impactful, right, that that both sides are going to try and do is, given the high state of background knowledge, the more you can tell a juror something they didn't already know coming in, um, the more likely that is to stick with them, right? And so, you know, you're, yeah, this is what, what we saw today, um, at least from my perspective, uh, from the, 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 the initial witness testimony, was information that was likely to make the jurors right we began with as you point out refreshing their their recollection regarding the video in opening statements you've seen that but here's what you haven't heard and and i think that you know those two things are are likely very very powerful um for a jury that has a high level of information about this case yeah and we will keep um we will keep reporting on this case yep. as it goes on. It's going to get uh, more interesting, more infuriating, uh, especially when the defense starts calling witnesses, when there's cross-examination. Uh, and, you know, we'll talk about all of this uh, as as it unfolds. But those were the, those were the three standout, uh, now four standout moments to me. Uh, so uh, everybody uh, stick around. We have a lot more to get to in this episode of Clean Up on L45. And we will be right back with it as soon as we just take this quick break. So stick around. 
Hey everybody, it's AG for Clean Up on Aisle 45. Do you ever listen to the podcast and you want to scream your opinions or questions at us? Well, now you can. We're going live on the Stereo app where you can ask us your questions directly. Join us for the Clean Up on Aisle 45 after-party Q&A for uncensored opinions and exclusive content only available on the Stereo app. I love the Stereo app. I'm on there talking all the time. You can follow me at Allison Gill and get notified every time we go live. We'll take a deep dive into a variety of topics and interact directly with the listeners. So download the Stereo app and follow us. Just go to Stereo.com slash Allison Gill. There's a link in the show description, too. And then join us on the Stereo app. Stereo app has thousands of live social conversations with a lot of different genres and topics, including news, comedy, sports, movies, anything you really are looking for. You choose whether to be a co-host, participate as a guest, or simply listen to exclusive conversations. We'll see you for the cleanup on aisle 45. After Party, Tuesday at 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. All right, everybody, welcome back. Now, we know, Andrew, you and I have talked about this, agency by agency, the Biden administration has tasked leadership within those agencies with combing through policy and, and weeding out things put in place by the former guy that don't align with science and facts, <laughs> which shouldn't have to be done, but it's being done. We saw it with the CDC, where they pulled all policy and exercised transparency about COVID policies, written, member reports written by people outside the CDC mm-hmm. that weren't anchored in science. Um, well, now it's the EPA's turn. And the Biden administration is taking the unusual step of making uh, public accounting of the Trump administration's political interference in science. And they've drawn up a list of dozens of regulatory de- uh, decisions that may have been warped, may have been uh, warped by, <laughs> by political interference in objective research. It's particularly explicit at the EPA, where, where Biden's political appointees said they felt that an honest accounting of past problems was necessary to assure career scientists that their findings would no longer be buried or manipulated. They're telling people who work for the EPA... Hey, here I come to save the day. You no longer have to <laughs> be sad about Sharpies drawing uh, hurricanes around out. Like we that's I know Noah, but like we're here to to rescue you, uh, to, you know, to say uh, that that your scientific stuff isn't going to be buried anymore under political considerations. Yeah, I I love the underdog reference. That is fantastic. Thank you. It was more of a it was more of a uh, oh, oh, mighty mouse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, was it Underdog or Mighty Mouse? I don't know. I got it from Man on the Moon, right? Andy Kaufman. Oh, well, sure. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, the the other thing that I would bracket along with that is I believe in science was an applause line during the Biden campaign, right? The The trailing month was essentially, you know, hey— if you think COVID is real and you believe in science, then get out and vote for Biden. And, you know, if you're a QAnon conspiracy idiot, go out and vote for the other guy. Um, and, and it's really nice to see that this was more than just sloganeering and more than just I believe in science when it comes to COVID. Right. It really was and is an animating principle of the entire administration. It's another thing I, I think that we can be really proud of the Biden administration for. And again, you know, we've, we've talked about that, maybe coming from a position of, you know, not not being my favorite candidate in the primaries um, to uh, really taking to heart um, a, a message that was driven home during the campaign. So in a very blunt memo <laughs> issued this month, 
One senior Biden appointee said that political tampering under the Trump administration had, quote, compromised the integrity of the agency reports and and what should have been solid agency science. So the list that the Biden administration has put together um, where any staff member has said that scientific integrity was violated um, is expected to reach about 90 Different items. Um, It currently includes, yeah, well-known controversies like the ricochet of decisions around Pebble Mine, a proposed copper and gold mine in Alaska's Bristol Bay region, um, as well as rulings around um, obscure toxic chemicals. Um, And then there are other specific examples within the EPA, such as political leaders that have uh, discounted or underplayed studies that showed uh, the explicit harm of decambia, which is a popular weed killer that has been linked to cancer, um, and then subsequently ruling as a matter of policy, not science, that the effectiveness outweighed the risks. Yeah, of course. And uh, Biden's EPA administrator, Michael Regan, wrote an agency-wide email this past week saying, quote, manipulating, suppressing, or otherwise impeding science has real-world consequences for human health and the environment. When politics drive science rather than science-informing policy, we're more likely to make policy choices that sacrifice the health of the most vulnerable among us. Now, in the email, he also took the step of asking agency employees to bring any items of concern, any items of concern, to the, to the agency's scientific integrity officials or the independent inspector general and pledged to encourage the open exchange of differing scientific and policy positions. I also promise you, he continued, that retaliation, retribution, intimidation, bullying or other reprisals will not be tolerated, which means he's 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 basically saying, look, everybody, I know that you've been afraid to speak up. And that, you know, in many of our agencies, inspectors general offices or uh, whistleblower offices, whistleblowers are more likely retaliated against uh, to, to sort of shore up and benefit Trump appointees and the politics of the day. And he's saying that's no more. None of that. Anything that you have an issue with, you can come to us. Yeah. Um, the changing the atmosphere of whistleblowers will be fired to we want to hear from your concerns is is a big step. I'll tell you another big step. Um, you might remember the other guys. Uh, first EPA administrator, the uh, loathsome and thoroughly corrupt Scott Pruitt. Um, I, it, just in case you need a rundown of his worst hits, um, he removed the agency's webpage on climate change. Um, by the way, that has since been replaced with the change in administration. He fired and barred independent scientific advisors who had received grants from the EPA. Um, That was a policy that a federal court ultimately found to be illegal. Um, And uh, as we saw, as you've discussed on your show and I've discussed on mine, um, throughout the administration, key task force leaders were replaced with industry representatives, right? So coal and gas executives were regulating coal and gas, uh, and, and, and et cetera. Um, Pruitt also rolled back scientifically supported policies such as limiting pollution from trucks that had rebuilt engines after meeting with um, auto executives and lobbyists. (laughs) 
And and not only that, right? But Pruitt's successor w- uh, wasn't much better, right? His track record wasn't better either. Mm, yeah, that's a that's a that's putting it mildly. Andrew Wheeler faced accusations that he repeatedly ignored and shut out his own scientists, such as issuing a rule that curbed but did not ban asbestos. Um, that that rule, by the way, also incentivized the importation of asbestos from Russia. So mm. that, that, that's fun. Um, that country that we tend to look to as having the highest level of consumer safety. Um, uh, Wheeler also declared the health effects of chloropyrifos, a widely used pesticide, unresolved, (laughs) despite years of agency research that proved its dangers uh, to infants. Um, And Wheeler pushed through a policy, uh, which again has been struck down in the courts, um, to limit the type of health and epidemiological studies that could be used to justify regulations, right? So in other words, putting a thumb on the scale of what counts as evidence within the EPA. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and and the the pesticide unresolved, despite it being resolved yes. that it was dangerous <laughs> to infants. Okay, now have there been any comments from the former guy's side on on why on what the hell they were doing since all of this is coming out now? Of course. <laughs> so former Trump administration officials said that the efforts by Biden's EPA to discredit their work uh, was its own brand of. Politically motivated meddling, right? They said, oh, no, no. Our work was conducted with robust scientific discourse. Um, so it, <laughs> I know it was hard for me to get through that one, too. Here's Mandy Gunasakara, um, who was uh, Wheeler's chief of staff, uh, quote, Every decision we made in the Trump administration was rooted in science. I, I, seriously, like I, there are, you know, I, I, Meryl Streep could not read this line with a straight face. Anyway, and next up on our hits, on our hit greatest hit CD, Doctor Burks, followed by Mister Wheeler's chief of staff, Manny Gunasakara, with every decision we made was rooted in science and based on advice and concurrence with career sciences. Yes, let's hear it. I, it, it, it is. I, I think that speaks for itself. <laughs> How many times? How, if I had a nickel, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah and uh, Michelle Friedhoff, that is the EPA's new acting assistant administrator in the Office of Chemical Safety agreed in a recent interview that disagreements over how science should inform policy are common, right? That, uh, dis- but disagreements about yeah. science are generally not, right? Ms. Friedhoff said what she discovered shortly after she joined the agency in January went well beyond that and beyond what she was even expecting to find, knowing who the former guy is. She said she had briefings and meetings in which scientists have hesitated to explain how and why certain decisions were made during the Trump years, only to learn of multiple instances in which the researchers were told to disregard data or certain studies or were shut out of decision-making altogether. Mm. She also said career scientists and other employees had been forced to spend an inordinate amount of time helping politically connected companies obtain favorable classifications for the products. Ooh, ooh, ooh. So any word on which of those companies got favorable treatment? 
that. I wish I knew the EPA uh, has declined to specify the companies involved uh, or their political connections, saying that some of the decisions are still under review. But officials said one decision related to the claims that a small company could make for its pesticide. That involved at least three meetings with a Trump administration appointees, usually for uh, what should be a routine staff level decision. So they always had these Trump level appointees come in for these meetings. Um, people just above the pay grade, right? But they had to circumvent the scientists. And in another instance, the Biden administration officials said career scientists were required to spend a significant amount of time helping a company that wanted to have its product classified in a way that required less EPA oversight. So that's sort of kind of the the deal that was going down, but they didn't name any specific companies. Yeah. Um, when asked about the reason for that transparency, William K. Riley, the EPA administrator, uh, under, and again, this is President George H.W. Bush, right? We're not talking about crazy lefty here, um, but somebody who's been a critic of both uh, Scott Pruitt, that's not hard, uh, and Andrew Wheeler, said, quote, there's no precedent for the attack on science, the sweep of it, the blatancy of what we saw in the last administration. And, um, you know, that was an interview with the New York Times. That, that again, is, right, Earlier Republicans saying, hey, it's time for a return to normalcy. And I, I liked I like the last of what Riley said here. He said, quote, although it could look like politics and probably does to the Trumpies, it's a reasonable adjustment to what has to be a major transformation. Right. Speaking about the overhaul and reinstituting science based decisions. Um, Riley continued, quote, it's a response both to the reality of the scientific abuse that occurred and also important to agency morale. So I, it, that, I, that just, I took notice of that statement. I thought that was uh, particularly well written. Yeah, it is. And, it, and it's, it's, you know, with Miss um, Friedman, too, I thought I was really struck by, yeah, you know, a lot of times in every administration, we argue about how the science would inform policy, but we never argue about the science. <laughs> it's yep. just, it, yep. it's, it's, it's mind boggling, but they're cleaning it up. I'm absolutely uh, happy about this. I'm, I, I, I can't say I'm surprised that there's almost 90 items uh, in, in which this kind of uh, cover-up stuff occurred, uh, but I'm glad it's getting fixed, and I hope it continues to stay fixed going forward. I don't know if we have to codify anything, but um, I, I, I really, really want to look at the last four years as a blip, as just a anomaly in, in the way that these agencies are run. But we will see. You and me both. <laughs> and we'll keep you posted. Uh, right after this, we get to talk to Steve Vladek about stuff that's going on in the SCOTUS. You don't want to miss this conversation. It's always very informative to talk to Mr. Vladek, Professor Vladek. So uh, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's AG for Clean Up on Aisle 45. And this portion of the podcast is brought to you by Roman for Men's Health Care. Without the waiting rooms, squeaky doors, clogged sinks, finicky engines. When things break down in the house, you take care of it. However, when something's off in the bedroom, you just try not to think about it. Come on, man. What are you waiting for? Take care of it. Go to roman.com slash cleanup right now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all of the comfort and the privacy of your own home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. Uh, if medication is appropriate, it ships to you free. 
With two-day shipping, the whole process is straightforward and discreet, from the online visit to contact-free delivery with ongoing care. Um, you can expect a seamless experience. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash cleanup. Uh, you can complete an online visit. So take care of your ED without leaving your home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash cleanup now. You'll get $15 off your first month. It's time to take care of your ED. And remember, get started today and you'll save $15 on your first order of ED treatment. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we are joined by Professor of Law at University of Texas, host of the National Security Law Podcast and self-proclaimed CNN's SCOTUS nerd, <laughs> our friend Steve Vladek. Steve, how are you today? I'm fine. I figured if I call myself a nerd, it doesn't stand as much when other people call me that. No, I think it's a badge of honor. Are you ready to have a nerd off, Steve? Because, you know, we can we can do that. Every day in my federal courts class is a nerd off. So, you know, <laughs> bring it on. Awesome. Well, I wanted to talk to you because of a tweet that you put out Friday that really just struck me. Um, as just a, a pretty incredible statement. You tweeted out in response to the Supreme Court's decision in Torres and Ford Motor Company that, quote, today... Two SCOTUS merits rulings are the second and third of this term, along with Salinas, in which the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh joined the three progressives to form a majority. Among other things, there further evidence that Kavanaugh is increasingly the median. And can I I just want to ask you what you mean by <laughs> medium, because every everything has a center of gravity, right? Even if it's way over on the right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, you know, it's funny. Everyone, uh, I, I knew the tweet was on something because everybody reacted to it very, you know, very harshly from all sides. Um, so, you know, we, for a long time, this was the role that Justice Anthony Kennedy played on the court, because, you know, from when um, from when Justice O'Connor stepped down in 2006, until Kennedy retired in 2018, you really had two very solid four justice blocks to both sides of Kennedy. Um, that didn't mean Kennedy was a centrist. Um, I think you know only only people very far to the right would call Kennedy a centrist. It just meant that you know his was the median vote, um, which is just a mathematical observation about an odd number of people. The one in the middle is the median, um, and so of course as he went, so went the court. And then the big narrative when Kavanaugh replaced Kennedy was that really that had fallen to the chief justice, um, something we saw in Spade's last term when the chief was in the majority in all but two of the court's cases all term. Um, and when you wrote the majority opinions in probably the sort of five biggest decisions last term. But of course, with Justice Ginsburg dying, with her being replaced by Justice Amy Coney Barrett, you know, that pushes the chief probably off of the median and toward the progressives. Uh, and we saw that, for example, in November in the Roman Catholic Diocese case, the New York COVID case, where um, it was five to four with the chief and the other three progressives, well, and the three progressives <laughs> dissenting. Um, and so this this raised the question. So if, if the chief is no longer the median, who is? Um, and, you know, color me as someone who thinks that um, the answer is not Justice Gorsuch. Um, and that in the in the mine run of cases, the most likely fifth vote to form that kind of majority going forward is is Justice Kavanaugh. And I think that's what we're starting to see this term. Well, you you called out Justice Gorsuch. So that um, brings up, I think, a, a candidate that a lot of folks were floating as sort of the potential fulcrum after uh, the court's decision last term in Bostock versus Clayton County. Um, I, I read that at the time as 
uh, kind of an idiosyncratic application of Justice Gorsuch's textualism. Um, and and uh, I, I hear that coming from you uh, in this interview as well. That you know, it it you you don't see a, a whole lot of daylight between. Uh, Gorsuch and sort of the rest of the court's right wing, other than in, you know, a handful of cases where you're debating the difference between plain meaning and, you know, <laughs> obvious meaning. Yeah, I, I mean, Andrew, I, th- I think it's, I, I mean, I, I want to be clear, I, I'm not suggesting that Kavanaugh will be the median in every case. I mean, I think there will be a couple of contexts in which, you know, it's still probably Gorsuch's vote that's going to matter the most. Um, idiosyncratic textualism cases are a good example of that. Um, cases about uh, tribal issues, I think, are a really good example of that. Um, maybe even a couple of especially uh, persnickety libertarian, you know, property rights and or criminal law cases. Um, but, you know, in the sort of in the broader sense, in the big ticket items, um, you know, I think it's much more likely that we're going to see Kavanaugh play that role. And frankly, I think we just, you know, look at the Torres case itself. Torres was one of the cases that provoked my tweet. Um, and in Torres, Gorsuch is not just in the dissent, he's writing, right, parts of the dissent um, about why it's not a seizure when the police shoot you a couple of times, right? Why the Fourth Amendment is only implicated if you, if you actually capture you. So, you know, I guess it's just, it's just a long way of saying that um, it's not quite the same as when it was always Kennedy. Like, there will be some musical chairs when it comes to who's in the middle of the court. But I just think that this is really increasingly going to be a story about the chief and Kavanaugh. Um, and and frankly, I think, you know, that's what some of us expected before before the Kavanaugh confirmation process turned into, you know, what it turned into. I think, you know, the the sort of the initial mo- the initial view is that Kavanaugh was, you know, that this is not a surprising narrative in retrospect. It's just one that had gotten drowned out by the rest of the Kavanaugh confirmation noise, by the Amy Coney Barrett, Ruth Bader Ginsburg confirmation drama. Um, so I don't think it's especially shocking. I do think back to where AG started us, you know, um, the reality is that a, a Supreme Court where Justice Brett Kavanaugh is the median vote is a Supreme Court that is as far to the right as anything we've seen, certainly in our lifetimes and probably in the court's history. Um, and that's, you know, for some that will be a feature and for some that will be a bug. The point <laughs> of my tweet was just to be descriptive. Yeah. And now now you brought up... Uh... The Torres case. I just want to really quickly talk briefly about the Torres case and the Ford case. Yeah. A Torres case was 5-3. So, you know, if Kavanaugh had voted the other way, that would have left the 10th Circuit's opinion intact. And it seems like even the dissent wasn't enamored of that decision. So can you talk a little bit about uh, about that particular decision? Yeah, I mean, I think the you know, the sort of the 10th Circuit had basically come up with a very... Um, sort of a, a continued flight exception to an excessive force claim. Um, and the idea was that even if officers use excessive force, if the excessive force is being used in an attempt to subdue someone's continuing flight, that should be legitimate. Like that should be an exception as opposed to just, you know, the Fourth Amendment not applying at all, which is where the Gorsuch dissent ends up. Um, so, you know, I do think that there was some um, opposition to what the Tenth Circuit said. The, the 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 sort of the other part of this is, of course, you said it's five three. This was one of the last cases that was argued before Justice Barrett was confirmed. Um, so another possibility would have been if they really were split four to four to just have the case re-argued um, in, with Justice Barrett. There's no, you know, that in the past that's what they've done when they've split four to four. So I guess you know I, I'm not especially. This doesn't feel like a case where Kavanaugh jumps to one side to avoid a four four split, right? If there had been a four four split, I think they would have decided for re-argument. Um, 
I think this is probably a case where, I mean, a, a lot of folks look at Torres and said, oh my gosh, look at the chief in Kavanaugh. And my response is, oh my gosh, look at Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas. Like, you know, the, <laughs> it should not be especially controversial in this day and age that police officers can use excessive force even if you manage to escape from their use of excessive force. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then on the on the other side, we had the Ford decision, which was 8-0. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in, in that particular case? Yeah. So Ford, this is um this is sort of a, a, a first year law student stream. So Ford, <laughs> the Ford Motor Company case is the latest in a long run of confusing Supreme Court decisions, although this is an attempt to bring some clarity about something called personal jurisdiction. Personal jurisdiction is just a fancy term for um, in which states can defendants be sued um, based upon conduct that may or may not have taken place in that state. Uh, and so Ford, of course, big corporate defendant, um, was sued in Mich- in uh, Montana and Minnesota. Uh, these are actually two separate cases um, based on sort of alleged defects in cars that were sold in those states and arising out of accidents that occurred in those states. And the Supreme Court had made it so hard to sue certain corporate defendants anywhere other than the state in which they're headquartered that the lower courts said, oh, well, even though the accidents took place here and even though the cars were sold here, you know, Ford's not really here. So you have to go sue them in their home state. Um, and that's what the Supreme Court reversed um, in the Ford decision. Um, and yet it was eight nothing on the result, but it was only five three on the rationale. Um, and And that's, you know, that was sort of Again, where I think it was interesting to see Kavanaugh and the chief join, this time in an opinion by Justice Kagan, um, whereas Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito agreed with the result, but I think wouldn't have gone as far as Justice Kagan did to try to cabin some of the earlier decisions to try to reorient what the court's doing. Um, Really a surprising um, win for consumers um, before this court. Um, This was a case that was argued by Deepak Gupta, who a lot of folks are saying was on the shortlist for the D.C. Circuit. Um, so, you know, this is, I guess, evidence that it's still possible for progressives to prevail in at least nerdy cases in the Supreme Court, although <laughs> when it comes to much more divisive um, and sort of like socially and politically fraught cases, I, I wouldn't hold my breath. Yeah, well, let's put the Ford Motor Company case alongside, for example, the, the past 20 years of uh, jurisprudence at every level in the federal courts regarding people who sell, you know, an Etsy shop on the internet. And if you can track even one download of, you know, one $7 floral print napkin to the state of Idaho, then you can sue, you know, that individual uh, in Idaho. Um, it, It would seem awfully counterintuitive to say, you know, you can hail, uh, you know, Aunt Kathy into court in Idaho because of one uh, download, but you can't sue Ford in Minnesota when they sell, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of cars in Minnesota. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the I think part of this is just mischief that the court itself has created mm. um, in its last couple of personal jurisdiction cases. I mean, it's it's, you know, it's a common sort of joke among civil procedure professors, that each time the court gets its hands on personal jurisdiction, it makes it more complicated. Um, and I actually think this is the rare, you know, the, the sort of the, the reaction of CivPro professors to this decision was like, oh my gosh, they made it easier. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, the, it's, it's, it's not a coincidence that it's Justice Kagan who wrote the opinion. I think she was trying not just to reach the results to which the justices agreed in conference, but to write an opinion that would make it 
sort of less likely for this kind of mischief to recur in future cases where lower courts say, oh, well, the Supreme Court said this, therefore we can go one step further. Um, this, this was a rare attempt to actually be very, very clarifying um, in an area of law that has, at least in the last couple of decades, been very murky. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of, you know, this is a nerdy court decision and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, and surprised. Uh, you know, I, I think that perhaps when maybe a lot of these uh, voting rights cases make it up to the Supreme Court, particularly in all 250 plus that, I mean, what does a Kavanaugh median look like in those particular decisions? And that's the thing. Like, I mean, the, you know, I, I'm always um, a bit I, I don't know what the right emotion is. I, I um, um, bemused. Um, when conservatives freak out at, at decisions like Torres and Ford, they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, Kavanaugh's a squish. Um, right. And, and, you know, of course, that's not true. Um, the, the sort of the two points we're making are one, um, not every case is strictly ideological in the sense that, like, you will vote the way that you are expected to vote based on the party of the president who appointed you. Um, and it's a pretty sad reflection that people are trained to think otherwise. Um but two, I mean, you know, the there are cases where either because the law is just clear or because there are strategic reasons for doing so, you know, the justices actually behave counter to their ideological or partisan instincts. Um, and, you know, that's not new. It's just that, you know, we're 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 so scandalized by the last few rounds of confirmation hearings that we're surprised that still happens. Yeah, let's let's drill down on that a little bit. Um, what what I thought was possibly the most significant amicus brief in the past 10, 15, 20 years uh, was the one filed by uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse in the New York Pistol and Rifle Association case, right? Um, And that demonstrated at the time that I think it was 76 of 79, 5-4 and 5-3 decisions from the Roberts Court uh, hit that conservative outcome. And I know he continues to update that spreadsheet. It's now, I think, 80 of 83, right? Um, and and the argument, I mean, you know, it sort of seems to go twofold. Um, number one is educating the public of, you know, look, this is over and over again. The baseline is a conservative court reaching conservative ideological outcomes whenever it's split five to four or five to three. Um, and 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 second, I mean, sort of it, 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 on my other show, it, it gave rise to what we coined as shame John Roberts as the strategy, you know, until, um, you know, uh, un, un, until Amy Coney Barrett joined the court. Um, so I, I, I would I would love to get your thoughts on that. You know, whether to, that that seems like the, kind of the right read in the situation and whether, you know, whether there's a now a, a shame Brett Kavanaugh or, uh, you know, what the strategy is for Pete. Right. I've, I've packed a lot in there, so I'll let you talk and then we can, you know. No, I mean, I, I but, but Andrew, there's a lot here. I mean, and, and so, I, you know, I, I, I think that's right. Um, I guess my own gut reaction is that. Um, the whole shame John Roberts thing is really overblown, um, right? That that John Roberts is a heck of a lot smarter than most of the people trying to outsmart him. Um, <laughs> I, and, fair. <laughs> you know, I mean, he is, you know, he is incredibly, I mean, he plays, he plays, you know, three-dimensional chess, um, four, even four-dimensional chess, the, the Vulcan version. Um, <laughs> and And what I find especially sort of revealing about that is that, I, you know, he doesn't need Sheldon Whitehouse, um, you know, to sort of file a brief like that to know. Um, 
And so it's right. The, the, the point is that the White House brief is not directed to Roberts. The White House brief is directed to stirring up public outrage to a point that a case that wasn't about the court as an institution becomes about the court as an institution. Um, and that's the New York gun case, right, yeah. in, in a nutshell, that that the case in no way was about the Supreme Court as an institution, as opposed to a technical question about mootness until Sheldon Whitehouse came along. Um, and so I think that the reality is like, yes, the chief is going to be sensitive to the court as an institution. Why isn't why you know, why are we focused on that as opposed to why the other justices aren't? <laughs> um, right, like in other times, we would have been like, yes, they all should be sensitive to the role of the court as an institution, as opposed to one of them. Um, as for whether that means now it's going to be about shaming Brett Kavanaugh, I mean, I, those are two different creatures. Um, and, and I think, you know, those insofar as as Kavanaugh is amenable or at least susceptible to some of the same arguments as the chief, I think it's mostly going to be from the chief that that pressure comes, not from outside sources. Um, and so that's why, you know, I'm I'm especially fascinated not just by the, the relationship between the chief and Kavanaugh, but by where we see Justice Barrett in cases in which there is a schism between the chief and Kavanaugh on the one hand and Thomas Alito and Gorsuch on the other, um, right? Is she is she going to sort of try to, you know, stay in both camps? Um, is she going to clearly align with one over the other? Um, and, you know, so far, the evidence on that is fairly equivocal um, in the sense that there's, you know, in one of the California COVID cases, she goes with the chief and Kavanaugh in the middle, as opposed to Alito and Thomas and Gorsuch at the fringe. Um, and then in one, uh, there was another, I think, capital case where she was more on the sort of fringy side. So I guess, you know, it's not Kavanaugh is increasingly the median, but like what should be clear beyond her adventure is the real power base on the court now is the triumvirate of the chief Kavanaugh and Barrett. Um, and, and, you know, you're going to need no matter, you know, if, if you think of the sort of the three camp, the two camps of now three justices. You need two of the three in the middle to win, um, and and I think the the real you know the real thing I'll be looking for the rest of this term is how often we see Barrett moving right as opposed to how often we see like Kavanaugh and the chief moving. And, yeah, and and you're putting you're putting Barrett in there because she's more of a blank slate in terms of the data that we have about yes. it. Yeah, yeah, I I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. We'll have to look into see how more and when more and more of these cases come out. Yeah, yeah, no, not right. Not not because she has not not because I think she, there's a pattern that we can clearly identify, but because I think it's too soon to tell. Yeah. And and so, you know, the I mean, the reality is, look, there are going to be a whole bunch of six, three cases um, where these distinctions that we're you know nerding about right now. <laughs> Are going to be completely irrelevant. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and where you know maybe there's some disagreement as to the rationale, but not much. Um, <laughs> and where the chief's job is basically just to hold the whole sort of conservative wing together. Yeah. Um, to me, the interesting data points are the cases where the six don't hold together, um, and and who besides the chief is not sticking around with the Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch part of that of that cohort? Is it just the chief, as in Roman Catholic diocese, where it was five four? Um, is it the chief and Kavanaugh, as in these three cases we've been talking about? Um, is it the chief Kavanaugh and Barrett? Like, I mean, that's that to me is going to be the big sort of thing to look for 
um, other than the, the 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 large number of just straight six three <laughs> wins or losses, depending upon your perspective, that we're in for the rest of this term, and and really until there's another vacancy. Yeah, and we'll have to see where that tipping point bears itself out as soon as we get more more data and more cases. I appreciate your time today. Next time, I would like to hear your arguments against my hypothesis that all chess is three dimensional because of time, <laughs> uh, but. <laughs> We can have that discussion another time. I, I, we really appreciate you coming on today. Professor of Law at University of Texas, host of the National Security Law Podcast. Give it a listen. And uh, CNN SCOTUS nerd. Steve Vladek, I appreciate your time today. Thanks, guys. Great to be with you. Hey, everybody. It's AG. And today's episode of The Pod is brought to you by Magic Spoon. It's delicious but super healthy cereal that brings joy to your mornings or afternoons or evenings. You know, cereal for dinner is awesome. I'm not the only one whose favorite food growing up was cereal. I remember watching Saturday morning cartoons, eating a big bowl of cereal, drinking the delicious milk. But now as an adult trying to eat healthy and whatnot, I've had to give up beloved cereal because it's full of sugar and chemicals and other junk. But... Recently, I tried Magic Spoon. It tastes exactly like regular cereal from your childhood, but it is super nutritious. They have zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. Only 140 calories, too. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And we have exciting news. Magic Spoon will be releasing two amazing new flavors this month for a limited time. We're talking about cookies and cream and maple waffle. And if that isn't the most comforting indulgent combination, I do not know what is. This is the ultimate treat yourself combo. So make sure you get some while you can for a limited time. There's limited time. Or build your own box. Available flavors include your very own custom bundles are cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, and cinnamon. I love the great new flavors. Combining them amazing is too. I mix cocoa with peanut butter and it's delicious. So go to magicspoon.com slash cleanup to grab the new limited edition cookies and cream maple waffle or custom bundle and try it today. And be sure to use promo code cleanup at checkout to save five dollars off your order this offer is now good anywhere in the u.s or canada and be sure to use our promo code cleanup at checkout to save five dollars off your order this offer is good anywhere in the u.s or canada but only when you use our code at checkout and magic spoon is so confident in the product it's backed with a 100 happiness guarantee so if you don't like it for any reason but you will love it they will refund your money no questions asked remember get your delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash cleanup and use the code cleanup to save five dollars off And finally, in something we began to flag for you a couple of episodes ago, back in episode nine with Adam Fernandez, the Republican Party has circled the wagons around Vanita Gupta with a series of thoroughly dishonest criticisms ranging from mean tweets. Yes, the party of Donald Trump is seriously arguing that mean tweets disqualify you from public service uh, to weird allegations that Gupta wants to abolish the police. Um, she doesn't. Uh, she's actually received endorsements from 450 separate law enforcement groups that um, don't typically endorse them. I mean, enough that I asked Adam Fernandez <laughs> because I was starting to get nervous. Like, are we sure that this is the nominee that we want? Unfortunately, Adam, uh, you know, dispelled all of those doubts that I might mm-hmm. have. Yeah, yeah, totally. You're like, did the cop sure like her? But one of the, yeah, one of those things he emphasized back in the interview in episode nine was Gupta's career of service, particularly on voting reform. And it's becoming increasingly obvious that's where the battle lines are being drawn in 2021. And all eyes are on Georgia right now with the new voter suppression bill they've signed into law that drastically curtails weekend voting, vote by mail, early voting, absentee voting, you know, all the sorts of things that any objective person would want if your goal was to make voting easier for everyone. And not, you know, not just in Georgia here. We've got 250 plus bills on the docket in 40 other states. Yeah. 
Um, that 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 is correct. Um, I, I I would flag for our audience that the key word in what you just said was the word if, um, which I, I know you meant rhetorically. <laughs> um, but but look, like I, I I continue to to love your calling this the Republican Longshanks tactic, right? It, it is many many Republican voters are going to be hurt by this bill and similar bills. But as long as you think you've hit 2% more of the other side, right, particularly in Georgia, um, and and a, a bill like this probably does, right, that's enough to change the outcome of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia, as well as the composition of the U.S. Senate. Yeah, and, and we're talking about Georgia, but Republicans, like I said, have similar plans in, what, 40, 42 other states now, I think, and, and each yep. year... Uh, the Brandon Center publishes a regular roundup of voting legislation and the, around the country. And as of February 19th, 2021, legislators in 43 states have carried over, pre-filed or introduced more than 250 bills that would make it harder to vote or seven times the number of restricted bills as compared to roughly this time last year. These bills preliminary seek to limit mail voting and impose stricter voter ID requirements, among other things. Yeah, that that's right. The The... This is where the battle line is is being the battle lines are being drawn in 2021. Um, we saw ordinary legislators get together in 2020 and say, "This is a pandemic, so maybe we should make it easier for people to vote by mail." And the Republican Party strategy from the top down is, uh, you know, ixnay with the making it easier way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it also tees up the importance of S-1. We've talked about this. That's the For the People Act. Um, that has, so that would be, uh, it, it, if it passes, um, and again, we're going to talk about procedurally what is likely to happen here. I, I do not think that the For the People Act is going to get a single Republican vote. It, yeah, it can't. It can't pass as long as the filibuster is in place or as long yep. as budget reconciliation does not allow for non-budgetary bills to be to be used in its yep. system. That is right. And and look, the Biden administration, his allies in the Senate have invested a lot into telling the story around S1. There's reason it's S1, right? Um it it, it I do not think that Joe Biden is going to look at uh, a, a bill past 51, you know, what would be 51 to 50, but fail for lack of cloture uh, and sit on his hands and do nothing. Um, now, you know, if he does, we'll be here, we'll criticize that. Um, here's what S1 can do. What most, as you just said, what most of these pending bills have in common, right? The standard Republican playbook on voter suppression is to make it harder to do various things, right? And so the the Georgia bill, for example, does this, requires you to show additional ID in order to vote by mail, right? Limits the amount of voting by mail you can do. Limits the amount of weekend voting, early voting. Limits the amount of ballot drop boxes, right? Those are the standard tactics. Um, S1 can set a national standard to ensure that all eligible citizens have the freedom to vote and the ability to make their ballot count. Um, It would make 
automatic voter registration, the law of the land. Okay, so you would not have the tactics that are used in 31 different states right now. 19 states have AVR. Um, you would not be able to use those tactics to prevent people from registering, to purge people from voter rolls. Um, the, it would uh, supersede state standards with federal standards in terms of expanding voting by mail and early voting. So it really is the best way to fight back against this. Um, and that's that's where the battle lines are being drawn. Based on the conversation we just had with Steve Vladek, how does that kind of thing go up in the Supreme Court, uh, in this particular Supreme Court, when somebody sues and says the the feds can't tell my state how to run its elections? That's an excellent question built into S-1. OK, so the elections clause in the Constitution specifically gives Congress the power to set a national standard for the, quote, times, places and manner of federal elections. Right. So. The Supreme Court on multiple occasions, but including recently in 2019 in a Roberts opinion, um, pointed to setting national standards for mail-in voting as precisely the kind of thing uh, that is a constitutionally sound example of Congress's power under the elections clause, right? So this is... Cool. uh, Yeah, about as ironclad as we get. Yeah, because I had a lot of questions uh, from folks listening to the Daily Beans about that specifically. Like, what is going to stop this Supreme Court especially from not just saying that? And so now we know that that's... Uh, that that's where we're going to uh, end up on that, which is which is good. That's great news. Uh, but it is federal. It's, it's federal elections. So Correct. The, 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 Correct. So these wouldn't sort of. But I mean, if you have an automatic voter registration for everybody, you're going to be automatically registered to vote. I don't think it's going to have a separate voter registration in your state for local elections. But, you know, who knows what they'll try to do to, to sort of circumvent this and make this difficult. Yeah, look, like, <laughs> you you don't win one battle and then plant the flag and go, okay, you know, <laughs> time to dust our hands, our work here is done. This is an, this is an ongoing back and forth. Um, and, you know, and Republicans have been in this for the long haul, right? Like, in the late 19th, 1990s, they engineered what became RedMap. Before they had the computer processing power, they said, we think we're going to have the computer processing power to be able to draw the kind of districts that they have drawn today, right? The kind that will travel a hundred miles down a highway, right, in order to connect one part with another part to reach a scientifically determined maximum uh, that preserves, you know, 99% of all congressional districts uh, as safe districts with a maximum towards uh, towards Republicans. And thanks to the Rucho versus Common Cause decision, uh, to which I had alluded to earlier, right? Like um, partisan gerrymandering is a a not constant, you know, is a constitutionally valid exercise uh, of Congress's powers. I I I wish it wasn't, uh, but... um, uh, but it is so. Yeah, we've got we got a we got a lot to do. Okay, and now the 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 sixty four thousand dollar question with the filibuster in place and 
budget reconciliation considerations only being used for budgetary things. And if Schumer changes the rules, it's only going to be to add another budget reconciliation bill uh, to the fiscal year uh, through other budget considerations. How do we get S-1 passed uh, if without a Republican vote? Um, you have to use some version of the nuclear option to curtail the filibuster, right? And Joe Manchin has been asked about this. Now, could you do it like say, hey, we want to nuke the filibuster on all voting rights legislation? Yep. You can, again, remembering that this is a procedural rule in the Senate, right? So this is not like um, our our discussion on budget reconciliation, for example, which is the, the, which is law, Right. (laughs) This is just the Senate's own internal procedural rules. And those procedural rules, you can always appeal to the decision of the chair at any time by a bare majority. So kind of like how uh, we no longer have to have 60 votes to appoint Supreme Court judges or uh, don't have to have 60 votes to do uh, presidential cabinet nominations, which you used to have to that the filibuster covered. But now we, we don't anymore. Those specific things. The filibuster isn't in place anymore. We can do that for specific types of legislation, you're saying. Yeah. And 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 so if you think about the history of the, the quote, nuclear option, um, it was first invoked uh, in Barack Obama's second term uh, when Mitch McConnell was blocking everything um, to, to say, OK, this applies to federal judicial nominees not to the supreme court right i that was harry reed right yep uh i district and circuit court judges um and then you know again uh we we've we've talked about this whenever there has been an exception republicans have driven a truck through that um uh, <laughs> but yeah you can you can define it as narrowly as you want now how uh, how what did manchin say about uh, about specifically doing uh, uh, this particular option, you know, getting rid of the filibuster for something like S one. You said he was specifically asked about it. Yeah, and and Mansion gave a Mansion answer, right? Um, he a he mancher. said, yeah, <laughs> he he didn't rule it out, right? Which is the most important thing. Um, he said, well, you know, I'd want to make sure that our Republican friends have a voice in the process. What the hell does that mean? I don't know. Right. So I it, it look, my theory, I've expressed it on this show before, I've expressed it on my show, is that Manchin is our Jeff Flake. Right? Jeff Flake got a lot of Democrats' hopes up, um, you know, said a lot of stuff that was critical of Donald Trump. But when it came down to it, he voted lockstep every single time with Donald Trump. Jeff Flake was never the decisive vote on anything during his time in the Senate while Donald Trump was president. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, voted for Brett Kavanaugh, voted for the tax cuts, voted for uh, the skinny repeal of Obamacare, mm-hmm. right? Um, that was his colleague, John McCain, who, you know, stepped in at the last moment and 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 saved some of Obamacare, right? So uh, uh, that's, that's who I think Manchin is. I think Manchin likes to uh, be covered uh, by, right? You know, he gave an interview this past weekend in which he said to the New York Times, uh, in which, you know, he was talking about uh, efforts by, uh, you know, liberals to lobby him and, and said, 
what are you guys going to do? Are you going to you're going to come down to West Virginia and campaign against me? Like that would absolutely help my cause if you were to do that, right? And it was a very, you know, kind of mansiony thing to do, right? Like you look at it and you're like, all right, don't be a jerk, right? <laughs> <laughs> but 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 at the end of the day, Mansion has cast the key votes that that we've needed as a Democrat. Like uh, uh, we have not lost as Democrats because of Joe Manchin. Yeah. Does he defect once once we don't have the other votes? Yes, he has, and I think he's got carte blanche, uh, you know, from Chuck Schumer to do that. Um, I, I I don't want to wind up being Manchin's biggest defender. He could still screw us here, okay? Uh, but I do think that there are reasons to be optimistic. Well, I, I here's what I think will happen. I'm gonna just put some beans on it, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, I, I think what's going to happen is that Biden will call a bunch of Republicans to the White House. They'll have several meetings about voting rights and, and, and S-1. And and the Republicans will say, uh, no, we want the opposite. And we want you to wear a clown wig on Tuesdays. And then Biden will say, hey, look, Joe, I tried. And Manchin will go, yeah, you tried. Let's get rid of the filibuster for a voting rights bill. And and then I think they'll do it and I think they'll pass it. That's kind of what I where I see this going. And if they have to erode, eat out, excuse me, <laughs> eat out. <laughs> I don't want to put eat out and mansion in the same sentence. Uh, if they have to erode the filibuster bit by bit for specific, you know, I I can envision next year we go, all right, uh, for immigration reform legislation, we're going to, you know, but you're right. Every time this happens, the Republicans, like you said, drive a truck through it. And so we just have to make sure never to hand the Senate or the House over to them again. And protecting voting integrity is the key to make that happen. Yep. Yep. And making D.C. a state. (laughs) (laughs) Again, lots of keys, right? Like lots of battles. But but again, so far, you know, I I have been impressed with the Biden administration's ability to hit the ground running. And um, yeah, and and it's like a Obama do over. Right. They're getting it done. Yeah, That's exactly Mm -hmm. right. Um, So, uh, the vote on Gupta was 11 to 11 uh, in the, the Senate Judiciary Committee, but under the power-sharing arrangement that we told you here on this program was a good idea uh, and that uh, Chuck Schumer was able to secure with only, like, words, right? <laughs> you know, nice, cheap words from Joe Manchin uh, as, uh, as concession. Um, under that agreement, either uh, the... Uh, the ranking member or the ranking minority member, right, can advance a tied proposition to the full Senate. So Gupta's going to get a full hearing from the Senate. She's going to pass 51 to 50. Um, and, you know, it's it's ridiculous that it's going to be 51 to 50. It, 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 I, I should add, um, I don't know, you know, where Elisa Murkowski is on this, right? So you could get a couple Republican votes, uh, but you're going to get all 50 Democrats and you're going to get virtually no Republicans. Um, and that's a shame because uh, they are scapegoating her and um, and they're scapegoating her because of her expertise on this issue. Mm, gotcha. All right. Well, we will uh, obviously keep everybody informed about all of these things. And uh, 
I'm especially looking forward to the, I mean, we've got the, the New York Attorney General and the Manhattan District Attorney teaming up, tag teaming Steve Bannon. Uh, I, I'm just excited about that. There's just all sorts of things that are happening. Uh, five different cases going against Trump right now. We've got two. We got duly grand juries down in Fulton County, Georgia, looking into the Trump <laughs> um, case into election interference. I think they've got a RICO specialist down there. There's just so much yet to come. It's never and RICO. I really, I really appreciate everybody uh, listening to the to this show and and, and staying, um, you know. Staying abreast of everything by by listening to us, I, I appreciate it. I, I think what you're saying is we're we're not going to mothball the show anytime soon. No, <laughs> uh, there is plenty left to do, plenty left to clean up. So we'll be here for a while. All right. Well, that's uh, that's our show for today, and uh, we will see you next Wednesday morning. Yeah, and Tuesday, uh, April. What would that be? I guess second. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, maybe April 6th, you and I, stereo. It's a date. All right. I love doing those. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll see you next week. Thanks very much. I've been AG. And I'm AT. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres and is engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazzell and Starburns Audio. Fact-checking and research by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with quality assurance and media by Muller She Wrote LLC. Branding design and logo by Starburns Audio and Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our copy is written by Jesse Egan. Our music is written and recorded by Adam Orr and Christopher Hoffey and our opening sequence was designed by Allison Gill and mixed by Mackenzie Mazzell and Starburns Audio. Follow us on Twitter at Aisle45Pod and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss our cleanup on aisle 45 after party over on the Stereo app. We'll be going live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 Eastern, and we want to hear from you. Our first Stereo show went a little bit like this. These big corporations are donating money to politicians that are trying to suppress the vote. uh, And that public pressure got them to come out and go, we oppose this, right? So your voice does matter. People just like you um, have have made a difference. Um, and I love, you're going to hear this on tomorrow's cleanup, um, but Allison has a spectacular analogy that I'm not going to spoil on tonight's Q&A um, involving uh, the, the fact that these Republican efforts target Republicans as well, right? And so um, <laughs> oh, yeah. it, 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 it's so good, and I don't want to spoil it. Um, but but their thought process is, yeah, we don't care if we, uh, you know, wind up suppressing some Republican votes because we're suppressing more Democratic votes. Um, and that gives you an opportunity to build coalitions with people who care about having their voices. Does it, can you build a coalition with Uncle Frank? No, you, you can't. Um, but there are a lot of working class pro-Trump people who are like, yeah, you know what? Um, I'd kind of like to be able to vote on the weekend because, you know, I work second shift. And uh, uh, otherwise, like voting in person on a Tuesday sucks, right? Yeah. Lots of opportunities like that. So um, I, I hear you. Don't don't put aside the despair uh, and and. Uh, and focus on the on the positive, and hopefully we've given you some um, some concrete uh, options there. Stereo app is live social conversations, and they're awesome. And we want to talk directly with you, our listeners. So you can join our show, ask questions about news, politics, or anything, and you can share your experiences and opinions. We want to hear it all. So download now and join us live this week. Link to our show in the description, and join us over on the Stereo app. 
They might be giants have been on the road for too long. Too long. And they might be giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the shows too much. Too much. And now they might be giants are playing their breakthrough album Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. This ad was paid for with somebody else's money. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.